You're listening to the podcast of the Biopharmaceutical Section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi, folks, and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you are listening to the podcast of the Biopharmaceutical Section of the American Statistical Association. This is episode 35, and our topic today is benefit risk and the FSPI Benefit Risk Working Group. In this episode, I talk with Alexander Schott of Eli Lilly and Ian Hirsch of AstraZeneca on the great work they're doing across the pond. Now, on with the show. Hi, folks. Our topic today is benefit risk and the FSPI Benefit Risk Working Group. Today I'm talking with Alexander Schott, Group Leader and Principal Research Scientist for Global Statistical Sciences at Eli Lilly in Germany, and Ian Hirsch, Biometrics Team Leader at AstraZeneca here in the United States. Good morning and good afternoon. Thanks for being here. So what first attracted you to the discipline of statistics? Uh, Alexander, let's start with you. I actually started to study uh, pure mathematics, and then one of the courses I attended was mathematical statistics, and the course was given by a professor uh, that actually served at the clinic as a biometrician, and he was also very dedicated to methodological research. And that attracted me for a couple of reasons, because... I found it really interesting to work cross-functionally, so to work with different disciplines and to dive into actual medical data and to work with physicians on their questions and help them to understand how to make sense out of data. That was really, really interesting. And Ian, how about you? Yeah, similar to Alexander, I started doing math and I especially like like the applied part of, of maths, which to me was the was the stats part of things. Um, I worked uh, after my degree. I worked in an operating theatre for the summer, and I just understood from there how valuable stats is to the health sector. So I really wanted to go into into that area of statistics, um, and it really led me down the road to becoming a statistician within the pharmaceutical industry, which I am today. Very good. And Ian, can you describe for us what your current role is at AstraZeneca? Yes, I'm a, as you say, I'm a biometrics team leader, which is really that I'm responsible for all the statistics and programming inputs into a couple of late stage development programs. So um, all the way from the start of phase three to submission and beyond. Um, And the reason I'm part of the uh, benefit risk working group is within the company, I've been part of the team responsible for implementing structured benefit risk. And are all of these development programs within a single therapeutic area, or do you have responsibility across multiple therapeutic areas? So currently they're all within respiratory. Okay, very good. And Alexander, can you describe for us what you do at Eli Lilly? Yeah, I have basically two roles at the moment. One is I'm what we call at Lilly Global Launch Lead Statistics, for uh, one of our new compounds. 
And that is a role that is all about the different medical affairs part. So classical medical affairs, but also uh, HTA statistics. And within HTA, the benefit risk assessment is, is of special interest, but also in communicating benefit risk in the medical affairs piece is very interesting. And I'm also a group leader of a couple of statisticians located here in Europe, uh, actually across Europe, and um, I help them to drive forward exactly this compound in this area. And just for uh, some of the listeners in the U.S. who may not be as familiar with the term, uh, HTA is a health technology assessment. I, I believe that's correct, and I believe that's involved yep. with uh, the reimbursements of drugs uh, by different government agencies. Is, is that all correct? Yes. So in Europe, but also in the U.S., drugs may not be directly paid. So you need to make sure that the insurances cover the different drugs. In the U.S., that is usually done by the local or privately held insurances. In Europe, we have different systems. Usually it involves some kind of uh, national steps. So, so on a government area, you have, you have a uh, process where you need to uh, go through an evaluation of the added benefits or added risks of the drug. And then that may also involve more local, hospital, or regional kind of uh, assessments. But it's all about getting the drug actually paid for. Well, thanks for that clarification. And the reason for our discussion today uh, is benefit-risk, and it sounds like a straightforward term, but could you describe for us what is meant by the term benefit-risk, uh, particularly uh, when we're talking about uh, pharmaceuticals? So to me, um, benefit-risk is, is really a summary of the compound's efficacy and safety and whether the benefits outweigh the risks of a medicine. And I think um, the, the reason we're getting more interested in it is that we're trying to do it in a more structured way, so do a more structured benefit-risk. Um, and that, to me, is how you do a benefit-risk assessment in a more formal way, where you're weighing up things like the clinical importance of each of the benefit-risks, um, as well as all the data you have on each of them um, to inform the balance of the, the efficacy and safety that a compound has. Yeah, for me, if I want to add something, it's all about the decisions related to what Ian just said. You have decisions about benefit-risk throughout the compound uh, life cycle. So it could be that very early in, the, um, in phase one, you look at the tolerability and the PK profile and things like this and look whether that uh, points into a positive benefit-risk profile. Later on, you might look into, okay, is our benefit-risk profile good enough so we could move into phase three? Then the regulators come into play and need to decide whether uh, the benefit-risk profile is good enough to get it approved. Then the, the HTA bodies that we just talked about come into play and they need to say whether it's good enough to have it reimbursed. And ultimately, then the physicians and the patients come into play, and they need to decide on their individual level whether for them the benefits actually outweigh the risks. 
it does seem like there's uh, a great deal of recent interest in this topic and in better quantifying benefit risk across all these different endpoints. Well, what are some of the issues or difficulties with how benefit risk was assessed in the past? I think one of the problems is about transparency, so that you can actually uh, look at the benefit risk decision and see whether it's sound and whether you can follow it and whether you can understand it. And one of the dimensions there is also to make it transparent and traceable so that you can also defend it. So if you, for example, think of a regulator, why should they defend or to whom do they need to defend something? Well, to the public. And if they can show why they came up to this decision, that helps them to actually defend these decisions. And for the same reasons, you can think about um, company internal decisions. So these things should help you to come up to actually sound decisions that are not driven by certain biases or uh, by just focusing on one side of the coin. Yeah, and I think if I was going to add anything, I just in 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 I don't think things used to be done in a in a structured way like they've done now. And I think from what I saw, there was a lot of examples where data was presented in terms of you had the efficacy, you had the safety summary, and then it was just a, a, a statement about whether the benefit risk was was positive or not, and there was no real structure to it. Um, and in, and in, I guess within companies there wasn't, and I guess in regulators as well, that there wasn't a discussion on how each benefit risk compared to each other. And where we've moved to now is where we have more of a discussion about each of how, of how the benefits and risks weigh up against each other. Yeah, that way you get also more consistency in terms of your decisions and you can better communicate your decisions. Exactly. You brought up a good point that there's different perspectives on benefit risks where whether you're developing the compound or you're a regulator or even a physician or, or patient. So how throughout this process uh, do you take all of these different perspectives, some of which may be very different, and, and bring them all together? Is this just part of the natural structure to want to quantify the process uh, and make it more transparent, as you say, as you go through the development and regulatory process? I think so. I think really when you start a benefit risk assessment, one of the first things you do is look at who you're aiming the assessment at, and then each assessment could be different for different stakeholders. So your um, your, your regulatory, if you're focused on, on, a, on a regulatory submission, it might be different. If you're a regulator focused on the public, as Alexandra has said, then your, your benefit risk might look different and similarly for um, assessments for health technology assessments as well. So um, I, th I think it's when you start, you, you, you put what perspective you're looking at and sometimes your benefit risk assessment will be different for each of the different stakeholders. Yeah, I think what is important to keep in mind that it's not only statistics involved in benefit risk, but also lots of learnings from decision sciences. So how do you actually come up with a sound decision? And that includes breaking these decision process into smaller parts. 
mm-hmm. and uh, by and and in some you have more stats involved, and in some it's really about, for example, defining what the decision problem is, mm-hmm. and that may be different for different stakeholders and in different uh, phases of the research. Naturally, with patients having a perspective uh, on what's appropriate benefit risk, does that uh, necessarily mean that earlier in the process that companies are trying to better understand what patient uh, preferences are in terms of benefit risk uh, so they can better inform their development programs? I think, yeah, I, I think companies are. It's more around when you start your development program, you more are getting patients' insights into where the unmet need is for, for medicines that are currently out there and trying to, to fill that gap. So I think you're right that the patient perspective is actually critical when developing compounds, especially when you're making your assessment of the, of the benefit risk. Yeah, you can think about this uh, if, you, for example, you have a new method of action that has a different safety profile than what's currently available. You need to understand whether this different safety profile is actually a better safety profile. So does um, having less gastrointestinal problems is actually better than having more pain or you know something like this? So mm-hmm. can you? How can you weigh different endpoints versus each other to understand? that your new profile is actually better than the old profile. I see. Well, thanks uh, for addressing some of these uh, additional questions uh, on the topic. But well, how do the current research efforts into benefit risk uh, hope to overcome some of these past deficiencies in terms of transparency and, I guess, lack of a methodology or well-defined methodology for better understanding and communicating benefit risk? One part is what we call frameworks, which is more kind of a qualitative approach to breaking down the decision problems into different pieces that you can work through in a structured way and that you can address step by step by step so that you can demonstrate how you come to these different conclusions and what are the different alternatives you uh, considered, which endpoints you considered, why you went forward this way or the other way. So that is more the, the qualitative framework. I think, I think the current initiatives are really around giving people the, the tools um, as well as the frameworks, as you say, Alexandra, to have the, the conversations and as you say, that the qualitative, you've got the qualitative assessments, but then you can bring, incorporate with more quantitative assessments the uncertainty both around the data and around clinical importance that people are putting onto the, uh, into the different benefits and risks. And this really allows us to have a more systematic approach of what we believe to be, to have, first of all, to have the conversations, but then to actually put over in a, in a transparent way uh, how what we believe the benefit risk of our product is. So there's one particular methodology that seems to be uh, especially popular, at least one that I 
keep hearing about uh, when talking with people about benefit risk, uh, multi-criteria decision analysis, or MCDA. Can you give a brief description of MCDA? Sometimes MCDA is actually used as a synonym for benefit risk or for benefit mm -hmm. risk decision-making or for, for structured quantitative benefit risk decision-making. There are two publications from uh, by ISPOR on that topic, and uh, there's also a description of the uh, MCDA steps in it. So it starts with actually defining the decision problems so that you identify what are the objectives, what type of decision you want to make, what are the alternatives, what are the stakeholders. Then you uh, select and structure the criteria. So you basically say, okay, what are the criteria relevant for the different alternatives? So in our uh, medical sense, that's, that's the, uh, what are the key benefits and the key uh, risks or uh, side effects. Then you look into uh, measuring these things. So you look for the different alternatives, which are the treatments. You look into all the different endpoints and what is actually there, so to say, performance on these endpoints. And that gives you kind of a matrix on the different alternatives, which could be several different drugs or different doses of drugs, and the different endpoints, so the benefits and the risks. Then you go into scoring these different alternatives. So you come up with preferences from the stakeholders for, the, for changes within the different criteria, and then you need to weight the different criteria. So you look into the stakeholder preferences. And here's a stakeholder. You can have either experts or very often patients come into play. And this is the, the patient preferences come into this. Mm. Now then there's another step in this where you aggregate across all these different things. You try to come up with something like a total value where you can describe, okay, is the benefits actually outweighing the risks or not. And then in two final steps, you deal with the uncertainty. So you can, you know, you can put in something around the precision of your estimates. And finally, you need to interpret things and communicate things. So these are the different steps for an MCDA approach. Ian, did you have anything additional to add to that? No, I think it's a really nice description of MCDA. Okay. I think what it really does is allows it, it, it to be transparent about which benefits and risks you're, you're adding into. You've added into your assessment what your data is, what your, um, you know, what, what your, how you define each benefit risk and how important they are compared to each other when you put it together. I think one of the nice things that's happened recently by some of the different initiatives and special interest groups working on this is that within the statistics arena we've started to incorporate better the uncertainties around for example the data and the weighting that people have and um, so we sort of tried to start with the MCDA framework but actually moved it on more to have sort of distributions around your benefit risk rather than just a single number with sensitivity around it. 
that's I think called SMAA, so Stochastic Multi-Criteria Acceptability Analysis. Yeah, and, and sometimes probabilistic NCDAs. There's different terms for it, but the idea is that that we're actually incorporating better the uncertainty, which I don't think was done before, um, and, and, and it really helps that people can own the decision that's been made once you incorporate the uncertainty both around the weights of the benefits and risks, but also you're incorporating the uncertainty in the data you have, which is especially important, for example, when you've got a, a medicine in in phase two where you've got more a lot more uncertainty about data versus a compound that, for example, is um, at the end of phase three where you have a lot more data and you, you're about to, to submit it to the regulator. All of these different stakeholders can provide their own scores uh, and weights for all these different endpoints that are going into the benefit-risk analysis. So is it simply a matter of just trying to combine all of these different perspectives into one overall picture of benefit-risk? Or is there a period where there's some discussion about the the differences in uh, people's perspectives on, on the various endpoints so that uh, as a group, the group can discuss the, these differences in opinion and sort of come to uh, overall agreement uh, themselves prior to doing the analysis? Actually, there's a lot of discussion involved along mm -hmm. the lines. It's not like a black box process where you put in the numbers from the report, your computer comes up with a, a number that is either positive and negative, and then you say, okay, we have a positive or negative benefit risk profile. The structured discussion is actually one of the key benefits of this benefit risk profile uh, or the structured benefit risk approach. You need to agree on all, for all these different steps in the discussion, what are actually, what's your conclusions before you can move on to the next step. So, for example, you need to agree on what are the relevant endpoints you want to look into, what are the relevant uh, benefits, what are the relevant risks. You need to agree on the different weights, uh, how you want to come up with that. Does it make sense to look into patient preferences or is it more appropriate to look into something different and to come up with uh, in a different way with the different weights? You also need to agree on the precision. If you, for example, have data from different sources, so if you have, for example, data from a clinical trial but also from an observational trial or from a registry, these come with different precisions, different biases, how do you include that? So along the process, there's a lot of discussion necessary. And I think this structured way helps you to make these discussions explicit and mm -hmm. not, you know, being somewhere implicitly in, you know, different minds without, you know, having a transparency on what that actually means for the individual stakeholders. And I couldn't agree more, Alexander. I think whether you're using a framework or something more quantitative like MCDA or probabilistic MCDA, the, the really important thing is the discussion. These are just enablers for the discussion to happen and to actually be able for people to write things down and have a way of presenting um, the benefit risk and all the, everyone's different opinions. I think one of the most important things up front is before you even start is to... to 
really define what question you're trying to answer, what stakeholder mm -hmm. you're, you're aiming at. Um, and once you get that, that's probably one of the most difficult discussions to have is like, why are you doing the benefit risk and who are you aiming it at? And then you can go through the method. And then when you start it, because everything's done in a structured way, you'll start off with, well, what are the key benefits and risks do we believe for these different medicines? Moving away then, before you start talking about what data do you have, how important are the different endpoints before you even get to the end point of which is whether you have a positive benefit risk. And that all that enables the, the, the decision to be more transparent, but to have agreement with everyone that's discussing the benefit risk. Um, when you talked about different stakeholders, I think sometimes the benefit risk could be very different. So for a for a payer or reimbursement, your your benefit risk assessment is, is going to be very different than um, or the endpoints you're using within your benefit risk are going to be different than when you do it, for example, for a for a regulator. And then again, that can also be different from a patient perspective. So sometimes you won't be able to have a single benefit risk assessment for a stakeholder. But within each within a team, when you're actually working through a benefit risk assessment, that these tools really enable you to have the discussions um, and to to gain agreement. And are these methods currently being used in practice within pharmaceutical companies to engage in regulatory discussions, or are, are we still a little bit away from having these kinds of analyses and discussions uh, influence the development process? So from my experience, I think that that a lot of a lot of the presentations from a, a, a sort of the framework that we do for structured benefit risks are being presented to agencies. There's a few examples of how you incorporate all your benefit risks together. I've, I haven't seen a lot of things like quantitative benefit risk assessments being used um, with discussions with the regulators, um, myself. Um, and I think part of that is, is the incorporating the uncertainty you have um, within within the MC, for example, an MCDA type analysis. But so for me, it's, it's really around the, the discussions that have been had have made the benefit risk assessment to, to be more transparent about what you believe and how your benefits and risks weigh against each other. I think there's, a, there's for sure going on a lot in this area within the different pharmaceutical companies. You have um, in a couple of companies even dedicated people to, to benefit risk. Um, sometimes this is within uh, the safety organizations. Sometimes this is within the statistics organizations that moderate the process within the companies. You also have lots of things going on at the different regulators. So if you, for example, uh, look at the EMA Benefit Risk Project, or if you look at the FDA PDUFA goals and objectives, benefit risk is mentioned there a lot. Also, there was a no, was it was last year Lisa Lavange published a paper about different aspects of statistics and regulatory, and one of the key things was also benefit risk. So you can see everywhere that this is going on. And if you, for example, there was a recent adcom from the uh, FDA, and benefit risk displays like you know effects tables of effects graphs were presented there. So very often you can see at least parts of it being presented in public, but of mm -hmm. course from outside you 
rarely see the complete process. You mm -hmm. may just see the summary of it. In addition, maybe one thing to add is one of the biggest problems is that people have with the aggregating of scores. So how do you actually put all the benefits and all the risks onto one scale? And although as a physician, you need to do this every day when you prescribe, you need to basically weigh the benefits versus the risks. And this is also, you know, what you need basically in the end you need to do when you approve a medication. There's a lot of problems with that, but I think this is more coming from not understanding how the process works or maybe having the fear that that goes into a black box process. Mm -hmm. There's another part in benefit risk and other stakeholders that have far less problems with, with these kind of things. So, if you talk to people that more come from an economic assessment of products, they don't have really a problem to put everything on the same scale, namely dollars, euros, pounds, or whatsoever, because they come from it from an economic perspective. So how much is a benefit worth in terms of money? How much is the side effect worth in terms of money? And then they very easily, maybe too easy, come up with an approach to sum everything up. My point of view is that there are two extreme approaches to this, and probably we can learn from both of these extremes and to come up with something new in the middle that best balances these two extreme approaches of completely denying that you need to weigh benefits versus risks versus do it kind of black box in a black box way and just put everything on the same scale without really understanding what's behind there. The key part of all this is the, is the discussions. And I think by having the transparency um, of the benefit risk assessment, it allows people to um, see, agree or disagree with where you are with your benefit risk assessment. And therefore, it gets you to the key critical discussion points quicker by having this and by having the transparency. Exactly. And that's why it shouldn't be a black box process. Then you would be in the same problem of how can you defend or understand or accept this decision if you if you have that in the black box. Now, you're both co-chairs for the FSPI Benefit Risk Working Group, and FSPI is the European Federation of Statisticians in the Pharmaceutical Industry. Can you give us a little bit of the history of the group and discuss its mission? It came out of, every year, FSPI have a what's called a statistical leaders meeting. And in that meeting, they discussed current trends within the pharmaceutical industry and how statisticians can and input into it. I think in 2010 and 2011 they had a discussion about benefit risk and from the 2011 meeting given there was a lot of initiatives going on externally not just within the statistics community but but across industry and regulators that the, the, there were a lot of initiatives going on about benefit risk and they wanted to enable statisticians to, to input both into the initiatives but also within different companies um, to be able to input into the 
the, the benefit risk um, assessments that were that were happening. So therefore, to do that, uh, the the leaders put together a proposal to have a, a special interest group, and hence we we started the SPI benefit risk uh, special interest group. Um, and the mission um, was re- was at that time was really around enabling FSPI members to have to have access to the most up to date information about uh, based on outputs that the special interest group could have. And I think when we started, there were four initial areas. One was really around how to best apply methodologies within the pharmaceutical industry. The second, which I think was one of the really important parts, was to share good examples of structured benefit risk assessments that, ha- that had already happened and that are out there. The third part was to discuss and make recommendations on, on key methodological issues. Um, and finally, it was to share in external information that was coming out of the different initiatives and put it all into one place. And as I said, it was really for all SBI members, not just members of the special interest group, so that any statistician within Europe would go there, and I guess globally as well, to find a central place where there were all the different initiatives, nice examples, and people could come up to speed very quickly on the area of benefit risk. Um, and I think we've made some great progress. I think the, the kickoff meeting was at the start of, the special interest group was at the start of 2012, um, and Alexandra took over the chair in uh, at the start of 2014, so maybe can talk through what, what's happened since. Yeah, we have a couple of different work streams that have been quite productive in the in the past. For example, we have a training substream where we had a two-day training course on benefit risk earlier this year. We also had already uh, some webinars regarding this. Of course, we do present at different conferences. So, for example, we have set sessions um, at the PSI conference this year and last year, and uh, there was also presentations about, uh, about benefit risk recently at the FSPI Regulatory Statistics Workshop in Basel. We have a work stream that, uh, as Ian pointed out, about points to consider, and that has done a survey of how effects tables are actually used and created. We have another work stream that focuses about benefit risk in the HDA area, and that is a combined work stream with Chrissy Fletcher's uh, special interest group on HTA papers about to come out from that group as well. We have one group that is more around the quantitative approaches that we discussed, the, the MCDA and SMAA approach, and another one that is about base, which is also more of a diverse group with where different people are involved from different initiatives looking to Bayesian applications in this area, and there's a paper to come out from this group as well. The Literature Review Group published a really nice paper about how to get started in benefit risk, and I can very much recommend that. Very recently, we started a a blog on benefit risk, so uh, under benefit riskassessment.com, you can find very recent news and also updates on benefit risk. Uh, You can post questions about benefit risk 
And our hope is that we can grow this more and more into an area where people can can go to and find all different things and that we can update very easily. Very good. And FSPI is not researching benefit risk alone. Uh, I believe you're collaborating with a benefit risk group, primarily U.S.-based under QSPI, the quantitative sciences in the pharmaceutical industry, which is itself a part of the Society of Clinical Trials. What are the reasons for this collaboration with the QSPI group, and does it go beyond just adding uh, an additional number of participants to get the work done quicker? If you have two groups, one on both sides of the Atlantic, there's a couple of problems from a logistic perspective. Having meetings, for example, you get into time zone problems. Also, if you have a group that is too big, it's not very easy to to drive forward. So one of the biggest points where we actually collaborate is a combined newsletter. And this, recently we submitted a second newsletter and we are about to start on our third one. We have also one member that actually is sitting in both groups and that's George Quarte. And he's one of the links, but both Ian and myself regular meet with uh, Whaley and G from the QSPY group. It was natural to reach out to different, it's not uh, not just QSPY, but other initiatives that are going on. And I think it was an ask from when we started off the special interest group that really it not be just European focused, but really uh, when you're doing a benefit risk assessment, it's really a, a global thing. You want the benefit risk to be a single assessment for each stakeholder that is that, that's globally applicable and within a you know that those that work in in companies know that um, you don't just do an, do a, a compound for Europe you do it for you do it in the hope that you can develop the compound from a global perspective so it just became natural to work with and alongside different initiatives that were looking at different benefit risk assessments for that reason. Well, moving forward, how do you evaluate the success of the working group and collaborations with other groups such as QSPY? Well, one thing is for uh, for sure what's the feedback that we get from presentations that we give, from publications that we write, from trainings that we give. We have seen quite a good attendance in the past, and I think that speaks to the point that there's really demand for uh, learning more about that. And when I recently gave the presentation at the Regulatory Statistics Workshop, there were more than 150 people in the room and you could really see the engagement and there was a really good discussions afterwards. That tells me that we are on the right track moving forward. I just think especially around the, the special interest group is really, it'd be nice to be the place where people came to get all the information that's going that's going on around there and that any statistician whether in a in a large or small company or even from a, from a regulatory perspective can come up to speed in the area of benefit risk very very quickly and also be a great uh, a place where people can collaborate and maybe develop new methodologies so there's some great methods out there there's some great development that's gone on but I think there's always more things that we can do as statisticians 
Um, and I think the, the idea of staying collaborated with QSPI means that, again, we keep that global perspective, which I said is really important. There are so many different areas to work on and so many different things that are coming up. There's lots of space to to work on this. And if you want to join the group, you can just write me an email and, and um, then we can speak about how best to participate in our group. Well, final open-ended question, uh, and with a focus on benefit-risk, what do you see as the biggest change to medical product development uh, in the next five years? And uh, do you envision any major differences uh, between between the United States and European agencies and submissions? For me, I think the biggest change will be, and I think we, st we talked about it today, is really incorporating patient perspectives into benefit-risk. And really, that then informs the, the sort of designs of the trial and the endpoints that you might use in clinical trials. And I think both, uh, you know, both regulators and industry really want to understand more about the, the patient perspective, which then allows us to focus on the unmet needs of, of, of current medicines that are out there from, from the patient's perspective. Um, I, I really don't see a, a big difference between uh, European. Uh, and uh, U.S. submissions with regard to the, the benefit risk assessment you do, because obviously, again, you're trying to do it from a, from a global perspective. Um, and I think both CHMP and FDA want to understand the company's perspective of benefit risk. And as we talked about before, it really gets you to the key discussion points quicker that I've found. If, if there are any differences, I think the FDA, and I, I think Alexander talked about it before, is really looking at more of a structured way to get patients' input into into benefit risk, whereas I think the, the CHMP is more around focusing on how to make their benefit risk assessments that they're making of different, uh, of different medicines more transparent. Um, but I think both are equally invaluable. I think there's possibly one trend that could lead to differences between the US and Europe, and that is the different environment from an HTA perspective. I think in Europe, the regulators are aware that after them, there's a, this HTA assessment. And there is some, let's say, some trend to come up with a little bit more of a consistent approach between these two things. Of course, on one end, you know, the EMA assessment is European-wide. Well, in the future, probably without UK, but um, for the rest of Europe. But the, and the reimbursement is then on a national level, and it takes national differences in the health system into account. So it will never be completely consistent. But I think there are some efforts to get to a little bit more agreement there and more consistency there. I'm not sure whether we have some kind of different things, uh, similar things in the U.S. So I'm not sure whether the FDA is similarly drawn into these kind of reimbursement discussions like the European regulators are. So that potentially could be a source of differences, but it's really hard to predict what that means in the future. Do you envision, and this is for both of you, do you envision uh, some potential regulatory guidances, maybe even an ICH guidance on the topic of 
performing structured benefit risk analysis? I think the first step would probably to come up with some guidances regarding certain steps within the structured approach, and then maybe from there we'll see how, how things go move forward. Yeah, so I, th I think it's uh, still a fairly new area. We're making a lot of progress. And I think what will happen first is there will be a lot of examples that come out both from the regulated perspective but also from the industry perspective. And from that, you could see that if there's some good best practice across it, then I think that guidances might follow. But I think at, at the moment, we're, we're still working through it. It's a really exciting area to work in, and there's a lot of new methods and tools that we're developing at the moment to, to enable the, the discussions, as I said before. Right. Well, thanks very much uh, for talking with me today and about benefit risk and uh, the work of the FSPI group. I uh, wish you success with your future efforts. Thanks a lot for inviting us. Thank you.